1: Good morning, I'm Catherine
0: Zock, your social worker with the
1: microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Allison Leota, author of The Last Good Girl. Allison is a former federal sex crimes prosecutor who creates compelling fiction based on her real-life experiences. In her fifth novel, The Last Good Girl, Leota tackles campus rape at a prestigious university, drawing inspiration from real cases. She explores the issues of sexual assaults on campuses, the struggles of Title IX, activists fighting for change, the technology that has revolutionized the way crimes are committed and investigated, and the lengths those in power will go to protect their own. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Allison. morning, Allison.
2: Thank you for having me, Catherine. Yeah,
1: well, I guess, uh, you know, obviously it's great to have you on the show. This is, uh, I guess, unfortunately, a hot topic. Um, uh, you, you read more and more about campus rapes. Uh, I work closely at the University of Albany, and uh, uh, these issues, uh, unfortunately, come up more frequently than, than, than we want them to. Uh, so, um, obviously, your book, Timely, um why are why do you think at this particular time, why are there more campus rapes, are in, and I know they're in every campus across the United States, is it, are there more, or is, are they just becoming, you know, more, we have more access to the information about what's happening?
2: A little bit of both. I, you know, it is an overwhelming number. The number... That everyone says, including President Obama at the White House, is one in five. One in five girls will be sexually assaulted during her time on campus. That's just a staggering, staggering number. If one in five kids were getting mugged while they were on campus, we would be up in arms about that. It's also five percent of the boys. So, uh, why is it just coming to light now? I think there's a couple reasons. One is we finally have a vocabulary for it. I think. In the 1960s, we didn't even have the term date rape. Most of these sexual assaults are committed by an acquaintance or someone you know. It's not a stranger jumping out of the bushes. You know, if you look back at Bill Cosby and and those survivors from the 1970s, they didn't even have a word for what uh, they alleged Bill Cosby did to them. There just wasn't even that concept of date rape. So we're moving along to even have words to talk about it. I think the other reason why we're we're finally talking about it now is these Title IX activists, these young women um, who went to college, who were sexually assaulted, and just talked about it, refused to back down, refused to sit in silence, and uh, are forcing it into the national conversation.
1: So we have a whole group of women you're saying, like, well, I guess we're talking about now the millennials, who are not afraid to speak out. And, and exactly. are speaking, yeah, and are speaking out. But even when they speak out, and of course this is what you address in your book, uh, it doesn't always fare so well for them. I mean, it, it seems to me that that I mean, uh, the colleges and universities are still engaged in this cover up, and women still become the victims. And um, I mean, that's one of the major issues, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And uh, right now, there are over 150 colleges that are under investigation by the Department of Justice and or the Department of Education for violating federal laws. Title IX requires that they um, make sure that their students aren't um, harassed, sexually harassed. The Clery Act uh, requires that colleges report all of their crimes on campus, but colleges are, have been failing to do these things and, and so they're under investigation for it. It is, I think, incredibly hard to be a sex assault survivor to tell your story in any situation, but particularly in a situation where you feel like the deck is stacked against you, where you feel like the people in charge are not listening and and not only not listening, but don't want to listen. It's in their interest not to um, listen to you. No college wants to be known as rape you. No parent wants to send their kid to a a college that has a, a rape problem. And so colleges certainly have an incentive when adjudicating these um, cases to, um, to find that nothing happened. All
1: right. So the, the colleges have a vested interest in, uh, interest in, in keeping and not letting anybody know about what actually happened. And I think I have one of the statistics here that Dartmouth College's application rate dropped 14% after a rape
2: allegation. That's right. That's right. And that's just one example of how um, applications go down when uh, rape statistics are, are publicized.
1: Uh, Also, I think one of the things that was uh, brought up or discussed uh, or alluded to in your book is that a a disproportionate number of rapes happen in the first week of college. Experts call this time the red zone. What is that? What does that mean?
2: So that that first week is such a dangerous time for young women, also some young men who are going to college for the first time. They're young. They may have never had, had a chance at freedom, the no curfew, they can stay out as late as they want, there's a lot of alcohol, and they're not experienced in the, the ways of college. And so this is this first week of college in September is when a disproportionate number of these sex assaults happen. I think predators know this, they look out for that time, they are very active during that time because they know they have this crop of fresh faced young people who are not experienced um, in the ways of college. Well, who are the
1: rapists? Who are these young men? I mean, as you say, it's not the guy jumping out of the bushes or the, the, the old man luring, uh, older men luring uh, women uh, off campus. I mean, those, those aren't the rapists, right? I mean, they are... So, right. you
2: know, yeah, okay. And that's such an interesting thing. It was an interesting thing for me to learn because when I went to college, I went in the late '90s. Um, we were always warned about, you know, walking home late at night, and the straight, the the worry was always the stranger lurking in the bushes, and he was going to jump out and, and get you. And we were always advised, you know, when you walk home, walk home with like a trusted male friend, who, and that guy's going to keep you safe while you're walking home. And what I learned as a sex crimes prosecutor, and this is almost scarier to me, is that the guy in the bushes, you know, he's he there occasionally. When he's there, it makes a lot of news. But that's not statistically—you are far, far more likely to be attacked, assaulted, raped by that nice guy walking you home, by the guy who you open the door to, and, and when you're saying good night. So, um, so it's almost always an acquaintance. It's always someone you know, whether a good friend or just someone that you've met. And I don't want it to sound like, you know, every guy is just a rapist waiting to, to attack. In fact, it turns out that a very small number of boys are committing a very large number of the assaults. So they think it's six, about 6% of the boys commit 90% of the sex assaults on campus. So if a guy does it to you, it's likely he's done it before, And it's likely that he is going to do it again. So what
1: you're saying is if there's a a kid on campus, a boy, maybe I'm saying fraternity, uh, but that that young man is the one who's going to continue, is like a serial rapist throughout his college career?
2: That's right. That's exactly right.
1: So if it keeps happening, yeah, over and over again, who, uh, the school is protecting him? Let's say the, I don't know, does it happen in fraternities more than it does if, if one, if, These young men are not part of a fraternity. I mean, do they get support for that kind of behavior?
2: I do think that fraternities um, contribute to the problem in a a particular way. It's estimated that boys who join fraternities are 300% more likely to rape than boys who don't. I do think there's something about the mindset, uh, the, the hazing, the power structures, the way they teach boys to use power, that makes a subtle but important distinction in mindset and then how they're going to go on and treat girls um, in the future. And I also think, just as a prosecutor, one thing that I saw a lot was that boys in groups tend to make worse decisions than boys acting you know, by themselves. So whether it's street gangs, football teams, fraternities, um, there tends to be a level of riling each other up that happens when the boys are all hanging out together. Um, why, why are the boys not reported? It's a great question. Sex assault is the most underreported crime in America. Something like 80% of sex assaults are never uh, reported to the police. Um, and when they are reported, again, it's a long process. A lot of survivors do not want to go through this long, drawn-out process and give up somewhere um, in the middle. Or... Um, they may be found not guilty. Even if they are found guilty, it's not necessarily reported to the, uh, officially to the police. It's a college disciplinary um, action rather than jail time.
1: Uh, I have two questions. One is, what's the solution to this, if there is one? But I just want to get back to the boys. Like, where are they coming from? Where, I mean, they, it, like, Let's say when they were in high school, because, you know, they have a history of background. were they doing this in high school? I mean, what leads up to this when they finally get to college? This kind of behavior of sexually assaulting mm-hmm. women. Yeah.
2: I don't have an answer for where they're coming from. The, the thing is, you can't tell. You can see this guy and he looks like the nicest guy. He's got a nice smile and a dimple and he might be one of those predators. Or, or there could be a, a guy who just, you know, seems like a real jerk, but in, in a situation where he's a bystander, he would step in and stop something bad from happening. There, it, it's hard to tell. I think that's what makes it so scary. Um, is that this is a boy. It could be the boy next door. Yeah, and And, so what about
1: the parent? You know, I'm a mother of three boys, so I'm sort of, and I'm thinking, like, what? I know.
2: I'm the mother of two boys, too. And Uh, so I think it's so important that we talk to them about this, about um, that this is an issue about res- respecting others, right? Even I have little kids now. I'm like, oh, when she says you have to stop touching her. You have to stop touching her. Like, it's kind of a message we need to give them from the time that they're little guys and then, you know, a, a stronger and, and obviously much more nuanced message and a conversation that needs to keep happening as they get older and, and to just talk very explicitly about um, sex assault, what it is, when you have to stop, the idea of, I think, teaching boys to get affirmative consent before they go forward. It's not just like keep going until you hear a no, but ask, is this good? Do you like this? How, you know, how, how does this feel for you as you go along? And make sure that the other person's enjoying it. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of like just good manners and, and, and you know, a, a nice way to do things, but also to make sure that you're not committing a crime.
1: It's a difficult conversation, I think, and and I, I agree with you. I think that is important, but it is a very difficult conversation for a lot of parents, mothers, to be talking to their sons You know, it's not an easy conversation to have. And I think, you know, yeah, I think unfortunately most don't have that conversation. Do, Do you think there's anything that you could see in your sons, let's say, that would kind of alert you to the fact that maybe that he has the potential for, you know, crossing the line and, you know, once he's away and at school and in a fraternity
2: and engaging this kind of behavior? Are there any red flags? Oh, that's a great question. You know, with with these boys who do tend to be serial predators, one thing that they have noticed about them when when self-reporting, when being asked, have you ever kept going, when someone said no, they will just say, yeah, I have, I have, and they don't see that as a problem. So I think if you see um, an attitude like that in your son, it's time for like a real big sit down talk.
1: Are there any universe, I know that what what did you say 150 colleges and universities there are lawsuits pending now?
2: Yes. Uh, are there any
1: more investigations? Yes. Investigations? Are there any universities or colleges that have a higher percentage of these sexual assaults on campus than others? Any
2: pockets of I, Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, about that. I'm not sure that there's enough information to know who has the most, and who has the least, but there are some resources online that parents and, and college students, whoever, can check out to look whether their college has been investigated, is currently under investigation, or is um, pending, or has had investigations in the past. There is the the White House Task Force on Preventing Sexual Assault has a state-by-state enforcement map showing where enforcement actions have been taken. The Department of Education has a campus safety um, reporting map, so you can see all the the numbers uh, that have been reported. Although, again, this is the university self-reporting, and <laughs> if they're not reporting correctly, then those numbers are, are not reliable. But you can at least check that out. And the American um, Association of University Women has some great um, resources on uh, which and, on how to evaluate the safety of your campus.
1: Okay. Well, as a prosecutor, obviously, you have a lot of real cases that you can discuss. I mean, give us an example. I always like to have examples. I mean, some of these cases, because you talk about, um, you know, I mean, the great, the lengths that those in power, those in the universities and the colleges will go to uh, protect their own, and they will not, you know um and and so the the victim um, is never really able to uh, I don't know what you would call it get her just deserves but um so give us some examples like uh, in terms of cases that you've prosecuted.
2: Well, if it got to my desk, the prosecutor's office at the u s attorney's office, I mean that case wasn't one of the problems that's one of the ones that made it. <laughs> So that, that was good. But I, the, the example that I would point to happened just in the last couple of days, there have been these um, reports coming out of Brigham Young University where these, a, a number of girls have come forward, reported to Brigham Young University that they were sexually assaulted while in their dorms or on, on, on campus or off-campus parties. And in response, the university sanctioned the girls, punished the girls, for violating their honor code. <laughs> that's a horrific example. I mean, I, I mean, it's a that's so.
1: And where does that stand now? I mean, it's, what, this just happened a few days ago. I, yeah, I did. I read about that. But so now, where do they go? Where do the girls go from here?
2: I don't know where the girls go from there. I mean, it's it's a horrific situation for them to be in, and they're in the midst of it right now. As as America is having this conversation about sex assault, and and this awareness is coming bubbling to the surface that the university would choose to do that at this, at this time is really extraordinary, but it does show how deeply entrenched these attitudes are.
1: So I guess the next question is, so where, where do we go just as a society? Because do you think, I mean, a lot of things, uh, I think, don't you think culturally in terms also kind of contribute to all of this kind of behavior on campus? I mean, there are certain things that just as a culture that we condone um, that allows this kind of behavior. Can we talk about that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I I mean, I think there's always been a sort of a blame the victim mentality with sex assaults. There's always been the what was she wearing? Was she a virgin? Who has... She had sex with before type of questions, which were always asked until rape shield laws were put into place a couple of decades ago and, and, you know, because of pressure that women, that activists um, put on to, to get that, those sorts of laws to protect them from those incredibly invasive personal victim blaming um, questions. Um, I, frankly, I think it's in, in part because sex assaults mostly happen to women, and uh, laws are mostly made by men. And so they're going to favor the, the group that made the laws.
1: Well, how do you think, because I want to get back to your book, too, like uh, The Last Good Girl, and it's a novel, so how do you think that would, Im- how yeah. does that impact, yeah, on helping us to gain more of an awareness of, of what right, is
2: happening? Right. Well,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> thank you, Catherine, for bringing it back to yeah. the novel. The Last yeah. Good Girl, it, it is a story. It's meant to entertain. It's meant to be something you can lose yourself for a couple hours in. I, I love a good novel. I'm such a bookworm and my favorite thing in the world is to curl up with a good story and that's what I tried to do with The Last Good Girl. Obviously, um, the, it's a big issue, college sex assaults, and that is definitely a thread throughout the whole thing, but mostly what the book is about is it's, um, it's supposed to be a story you can read and, and enjoy like on the subway or the Stairmaster, the sort of book that I would want to read, the sort of book I, I try to write. Well, and also this book is part of a series, it is. It's uh, the fifth book in a series uh, starring a sex crime prosecutor in DC, like I was. Um, it's, uh, it's a standalone, though. So you can pick up any one of the books in the series, and they're meant to just stand on their own. You don't need to have read the first four. And uh, and just pick it up, jump in, and enjoy.
1: Well, as I understand that you've been dubbed the female John Grisham, but your goal is for Grisham to be dubbed the male Allison Leota. I like that. Yes,
2: <laughs> that's when I'll know I really
1: made it. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right, so then you're, yeah, well, I, I guess we'll, we'll see we'll, we'll with this book, but it, it sounds like that may be the case, right? So, in your own background, I mean, as a, I know, you went to Harvard Law School, and uh, you know, you had this outstanding career. Was there anything in your background that actually got you, you know, interested in this particular area of
2: law? There is, but it's not what people expect. My dad was a federal prosecutor in Detroit, and he uh, just came home. He loved the job. He loved kind of having the eagle on his shoulder, uh, lawyers. Mostly have to represent their own clients' narrow interests, but prosecutors have a special role of, like, always trying to do the right thing. You're not getting a, trying to get a win, just a win. You are trying to go in every day, to figure out what's right. That's the hard part, the figuring out what's the right thing, and then you get to do the right thing. It's a luxury most lawyers don't have. My dad had amazing stories. He loved what he was doing, and that, I think, rubbed off on me. Made me want to go into uh, federal prosecution as well.
1: Yeah. So, he was your mentor?
2: My role model, my inspiration, absolutely. Yeah, my first job was at his law firm, <laughs> filing. I took that filing very seriously. <laughs> yeah. I, my father
1: was a, a trial attorney, attorney as well, and I also was filing at his office. And then I became a social worker. So, it, ah, yeah. So, so maybe
2: you had a similar experience. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I worked for him for in the summers. Um, in his library, but, uh, yeah, so he was, but, uh, getting back to your father, so he was a federal po- prosecutor, that's what you wanted to become, so uh, talk to us a little bit about your history, though, then, okay, so you went to Michigan State, and, yeah, and then directly to Harvard Law School?
2: Right. Yep, and then I, um, my dream job was working for the Department of Justice, I was super lucky to get in, um, right out of my clerkship. And then I got it into the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., and there were two tracks there. You could go the track um, where you prosecute um, general crimes like guns, drugs, and then culminating in the, in the highest level of crime, homicides. Or you could do the special victims crimes, crimes against children, domestic violence, and culminating in the most serious of those crimes, felony sex offenses. And it was, it was an interesting experience because in my class of, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 young lawyers who were starting at the same time, uh, all of the guys wanted to go into the homicide section and all of the women wanted to go into the sex offense section. So much so that um, it was called the pink collar unit.
1: Uh, That's very interesting, yeah, very different uh, perspectives, very different goals. What about, okay, now the fact is that now you've become an author as well, so how did you
2: kind of segue into that? It was, I think, a very natural sort of segue because I never could leave the job at the office, and I think writing was a way to help me process it. I was seeing such amazing things on a daily basis, just heartbreak and um, and cruelty, e- terrible evil, but also incredible inspiration—just people surviving and being strong, with human courage and strength, and loved families loving each other, helping each other heal—and also just incredible heroism among police, prosecutors um, who were fighting for their community. So it was—it was a very, very intense job. It was crazy. It was rewarding. And I never could leave it at the office. I was thinking about it all the time. So I think that naturally writing was a way to, to process all of it.
1: So how do your sons feel about what you do?
2: <laughs> I try not to talk to them about it. Actually, they're young. They're pretty young little guys. They're in elementary school. And so um, I, I'm slowly introducing them to to the idea. They don't they don't even know what a sex crime is, and I'm actually trying to keep that from them for a little while. But we talk about the, the good the good guys and the bad guys, and trying to protect people. And uh, they think they think that's great. Well, let's get
1: back to the book. Uh, who do you recommend the book for? Is this I mean, it's a novel. So as you said, it's rec- I, I mean, it's for all of us. I, I assume right.
2: It is. It's for anybody who likes a good crime novel, a good thriller. There's a little bit of romance in it, so there's that. I, I think that particularly young women or moms would uh, appreciate the book, but I, I do think it's a book that anyone uh, can, can jump into and enjoy. I, ho- I certainly hope so. Yeah.
1: As well as the rest of your book in the series, I guess, right? There are four or five other books that came before this one?
2: Yes, right, right. So anyone who likes Grisham or Patterson, James Patterson, or the Linda Fairstein, or Lisa Scatolini, um, Gillian Flynn, I think would enjoy these books.
1: Alice, okay, Let's. I want to make sure that listeners, can, obviously they can buy the book online, Amazon bookstores everywhere, and also go to your website, alisonleota.com. Uh, any other places that we should be going to besides your website to get more information about what we've talked about on the show today, um, or if anybody finds themselves in a position on campus like some of these women who haven't spoken out, what do they do? How do they do it?
2: Right. Absolutely. Well, I think those other links that we talked about, the White House Task Force and Sex Assault uh, is a great resource. There's all sorts of links um, in there to, to find your local resources as well. Rain R A I N N. The Raven uh, Incest Network is a great place to go, and um, the, I think the the main one of the main places to go right now for campus sex assault is that American Association of University of Women. A lot of great resources there too.
1: Okay, and I assume are you lecturing uh, around the country, or I know you're promoting the book, but also do, do you uh, do uh, lectures on campuses? I know you know you are obviously promote, promoting awareness on this topic
2: Yes, I, I go wherever I'm asked I, yeah. I pretty much show up so yeah I'm, I'm on a tour right now, and there are a number of events, and those are on my website as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Last question: Any surprising any surprises that you've gotten from any of when you actually go on campus and when you talk to some of these young people?
2: Um, reach? Yeah, you know what has surprised me is how much people want to talk about it. How many people have come to me to say this This is what happened to me. The, the what you write about in this book is what happened to me. And thank you for writing about it. Thanks for talking about it. And the reaction has been incredibly emotional and and strong. I've written four other books and I'm always happy to like, so happy to hear from fans who like the book, but this one seems to really hit a nerve. And that's, um, it's gratifying to hear that especially survivors have connected so strongly to it.
1: Great. Well, it's been great having you on the show today, and obviously we got a lot of information today, and, you know, I recommend that listeners go out buy the book, The Last Good Girl, Alison Leota, um, and um, I know you're going to accomplish your goal as uh, you're going to be the uh, male um, <laughs> male John Grisham. Um, <laughs> right.
2: Thank you, Catherine. Or, yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, great having you. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology
0: The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events at voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Frank Schaefer. Frank Schaefer is a best-selling New York Times author, a movie director, a blogger, a speaker, a fine artist. I'm going to name them all Frank. Father of three, grandfather of five, and a survivor of polio. And I also want to add a really good storyteller. And we're going to be talking about his new book, Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God. How to Give Love, Create Beauty, and Find Peace. Welcome to the show, Frank. Nice to have you on this morning.
3: Thank you, Catherine.
1: Okay, well, I just, you know, went online. Your book has been described as a celebration of paradox, and I know you talk about that, too, obviously, in the title. I'm an atheist, but I don't believe in God. But you were raised, as most of us know, as a Christian evangelical, in a Christian evangelical family, flying around in, was it Jerry... Farwell's private jet?
3: Yeah, Jerry Falwell's jet when we were out on the road in the 70s and 80s speaking to all these huge Christian groups.
1: Okay, so you're preaching the Word of God. Uh, I say saving people like me from maybe hell and damnation, I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, (laughs) but what happened? What happened? What changed you? Was it, I mean, this is obviously tongue-in-cheek, but a divine revelation? Or did you go over to the other side? Well, I guess you really didn't, because it's the paradox that we're talking about. So, okay, so what happened?
3: Well, you know, as you mentioned, I was raised as the son of an evangelical minister who, when I was a young child living in Switzerland, where I grew up in a ministry called Labrie Fellowship, in the 50s and 60s, he was relatively unknown, except to a few other evangelicals. Then he wrote some books, like The God Who Is There and Escape from Reason, that were published in the UK and also in the States. And all of a sudden, within evangelical circles, he got better known. By the time I was a teenager, and uh, the issue of abortion came along after Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court decision legalizing it, he took a stand in uh, that part of the culture war that was very anti-abortion. And so, of course, he then became very popular with the religious right. And at the same time, I made a film series when I was in my late teens and early 20s, called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, which featured my dad and also Dr. C. Everett Koop, who went on to become Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General. And that film series and the companion book really was the foundation of what became the evangelical so-called pro-life movement. And so all of a sudden, our families were celebrities within the American, North American evangelical movement, and we were very much tied in with the Republican candidates at the moment, like Jack Kemp, who was a friend of ours, and I used to stay in his home, Bob Dole, Henry Hyde, uh, President Ford, actually President Ford's kids were at the Ministry of Labrie babysitting my young daughter uh, back in the day. And so all of a sudden, like a lot of evangelical leaders, we became very much part of the rise of the religious right as it gradually took control of the Republican Party. And, of course, if you fast forward today, that right now you have this oppositional group to, say, Barack Obama, that is typified by the Tea Party. And if you look at those numbers, 70% of them are evangelical right-wingers, Fox News viewers, and so on. Back when I was involved with the movement in the 70s and the 80s, This is, you know, before Fox News and so forth, but um, it was very much the beginning of the movement that right now is is the religious right and so on. Um, When I got out was after my dad died in 1984, and uh, I began to really realize that I'd wanted to be an artist and a filmmaker, and I'd been raised in an evangelical community, but it wasn't about right-wing politics. Um, For better or worse, it was about reaching out to what we regarded as the lost, quote-unquote, But it wasn't about winning elections and so forth. And the more I lived in the States, uh, because I'd been raised in Europe by Americans, but nevertheless hadn't lived here. When I moved here in 1980, the more I lived in the States, the less I began to buy our right-wing cultural analysis of America. <laughs> kind of sure, people I like-
1: just want to, I got to just step back because what you said, you know, your father died and then everything changed for you. So yeah. like, is that what had to happen for you? I mean, here, you were kind of on your, you're doing the good works because of your father. I mean, you just sort of followed blindly or did you really feel it? Or were you too young or, you know, like emotionally, what happened? He died and you felt you were free and you, now you could kind of, go on and, and follow your own path?
3: Well, a little bit of all of the above. You know, these things kind of evolve. I mean, as a young person, you sort of accept what you're given, of course, don't you, um, when you're a child. And then when I began to work with that, a mixture of kind of greed, because there was a lot of money in the God business, access mm-hmm. to power. It's a very sexy thing to be landing in Washington, D.C., and have Jack Kemp send a limo to the airport for you, and he's a vice presidential candidate, and on and on and on. Um, And as a young man, I kind of accepted this idea that, you know, that you find in the British royal family and the American mafia, and that is that nepotism is a normal thing, and we weren't the only family doing that. you know, Jerry Falwell had his son who now runs the college he founded, Pat Robertson, who founded the 700 Club Christian television program. His kid came in and took over, Dr. Dobson, a focus on the family, half his family are on the payroll, this kind of nepotistic following along. But as I went from teenagerhood into being a young man and really tried to think of my future, I started to realize that I had landed in a camp, both politically, religiously, philosophically, That I really did not agree with, so the choice became clear. Keep on making the big bucks in the God business or get out and follow what I felt was really my own individual vision of things, which gradually evolved politically, but for a start... You know, when it came to movies, I wanted to make films that weren't aimed at a Christian market. When it came to my family, I did not want to be a Christian celebrity, quote-unquote, running around the country telling other people how to live. And, and when, it, when I looked at who my friends were, which included a lot of gay creative people or secular people or atheists or agnostics, the idea that somehow these guys were the enemy... Uh, became more and more abhorrent to me. So it wasn't an overnight kind of deconversion. It was a gradual process of shifting my politics and shifting my view of if there was a God, what he or she might want from us. And by the time, you know, I got into my early 30s, I was really beginning to question the whole package, and I just simply left. And so then I went off to Hollywood and made some very second-rate uh, features, which I got jobs directing because I'd cut a reel for my documentaries. And then I was luckily in, lucky enough in 1990 to write a novel called Portofino, named for the town in Italy, which actually got great reviews and went on and, and got translated into nine languages. And I began a whole second life as a secular, I guess you'd call it, writer. And uh, five novels and about a half a dozen nonfiction works later or more, I'm, I'm still at it. But philosophically, really what happened was almost more aesthetic at first, just how ugly the religious right had become uh, in its homophobia and its anti-feminism and all the rest. And, I, I you know, I, I woke up, and it wasn't one morning, but gradually realizing, look, I haven't signed on for this. I, You know, if two lines are forming, and at the end of one line, you've got Federico Fellini and his movies, or Jackson Pollock and his paintings, and at the other end of the other line, there's Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and these other jokers. You know, I knew which line I wanted to be in, and it was not what was leading to the religious right, and so I walked.
1: You know your evolution. I guess that's the word that keeps coming up. So you were evolving, or you had, did evolve, right? Of course, you, yeah. Uh, but and also, you're a man of obviously many talents. But even going back, I mean, you started out because I just want to kind of get a framework for this. And like, you, I mean, you were you got married when you were a teenager, right? Well,
3: married is a good word for, for getting my 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 present wife, Jeannie. That's 45 years ago, pregnant when we were 17 and 18, in the middle of a fundamentalist commune. Yeah, so you're having sex way.
1: before marriage.
3: Right. Bad, bad, right? Yeah, oh yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I was completely off the wagon when it came to individual behavior, and I guess it was after Jeannie and I did stay together, and I got married, and now I had a kid, and then a second child to support, and all the rest of it. That all of a sudden. You know, when someone came along and said, hey, listen, you know, if you'll make an, an evangelical uh, documentary with your dad and get him involved in the project, uh, that'll be well-funded, by the way, by people like the, the uh, family that started uh, Amway, who then went on and were the founders of Blackwater, the security group. So, you know, we're talking far-right support here. Yeah.
1: So what about the- um, you know, we'll hand you
3: a credit card and buy you a suit, and and, and, and you know, you can you can go off and, and work in this environment forever. But when I kind of grew up, which was a slow process, and began to look at the rest of my life, the question was, you know, as I talk about in uh, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, you know, my question was, well, do I really believe this stuff, theologically on one hand and politically, am I going to spend my whole life in this right-wing netherworld, and clearly, the answer for me was no, and on a personal level, too. You know, the way I was treating my wife, the fact I was on the road all the time, how angry I would come home, at the frustration that I was feeling of having somehow walked into this blindly just because I was born to a father who was working in that environment. All these things coalesced into a sense that I really wanted to get out, and so I did.
1: How did Jeannie fit into it, though? Here she marries you, or you know, your teenagers, and right. this is this evangelical family. This is what she, you know, she's she's there. She, you're in Europe, and this is what she's marrying into. And then all of a sudden, you're evolving, you're changing. So how does that affect your relationship with her? And by the way, and what you've been together forty plus years, right? Uh, yeah. So, what did that do for your relationship, or with your relationship, or because that had to change?
3: Sure. Well, it actually made it a lot better. It's the only reason we're still together, really, because the thing is, Jeannie came from a liberal, nominally Roman Catholic San Francisco family. Her dad was a lawyer. When she came to our ministry, it was really by chance. She had walked in the door because a friend of hers was there that her sister and her knew, and she was a, a high school student who was getting a, a present from her parents to travel in Europe as a graduation gift, and her sister who had just graduated from Berkeley were traveling. They had no clue where they had walked into. It was just a free place to stay, that a friend was there, and that's how we met. And so, you know, she, she went with the program. This was, you gotta remember, this is the 60s. The, the Beatles were out in India doing their Maharishi Yogi thing. Yeah. Um, people were on all sorts of spiritual treks all over the globe. So that was cool. You know, she was in a she was in a, a ministry, but it was kind of an open community and uh, not too strict. Although the theology was very evangelical. So for a while, basically because she had an interest in me and so forth, we I guess she bought into it. But as the years went by and my frustration level grew and she never obviously got with the program in a full way, really, it was her urging, for instance, that I bail. Uh, She didn't insist on it, but she was mightily relieved. And so were her parents. Um, Obviously, they'd looked at her as if she had joined some weird cult, which more or less she had in a way from their perspective. And so the, the, the weight on her side of the family was in the direction I went in anyway. So there, you know, far from meeting resistance, there was a sense of relief, and, yeah. and that's where we've been ever since.
1: So a lot of support. So it, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I mean,
3: just to put it bluntly, I guess the fact she was in love with me and we were having babies, you know, people put up with a lot of crap <laughs> from, <laughs> from family to to stick with the program. I that's mean, true. let's say I'd been in a business she hated, she would have she would have stuck with it. But the thing was, it was really good for us, and good for her, and good for the children when I got out and I'm just glad I got out young enough so that I could carve out a completely different life for them and for me.
1: Yeah, what you've done and I mean in the book there's so much which I want to talk about actually
3: your yeah. family
1: because the babies and your grandfather and you're actually uh, I don't want to say surrogate father but you're a grandfather who really is with the, your kids one on one, your grandchildren right. two of them I guess uh, every day.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean we're we're very lucky. I've got five grandkids. Two live in Europe. My daughter went over there. She married a Finnish American guy who uh, went to Scandinavia, and now they're in Brussels. And I see them on visits. But I'm one of these lucky grandparents that has now three little grandchildren—six, four, and nine months—living across the street. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, just before I came in here to do this interview with you, I was feeding my nine-month-old. Uh, daughter, granddaughter Nora Bottle and Jeannie took her off to meet Jack at preschool to pick him up and this afternoon I'll go off and get Lucy who's six in first grade and both my son and his, my daughter-in-law work and so Jeannie and I divide our time between childcare and the work I do as a writer and we're heavily invested and of course in Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God I tell some of the stories particularly about Lucy who uh, is six and, and was you know three four five years old while I was writing that book And the time I spent with her, and frankly, the lens through which I look at life these days is really much more my grandchildren than anything theological. So these issues aren't theoretical to me. It all has an impact on family, and how I see things is really, as someone who is working with children, trying to make sense of the world for them and with them and enjoy them and the arts and the things we do, You know, this is where my personal interests are, and of course I don't... In, in, in why I'm an atheist, to believe in God, I talk less really about theoretical theology, so to speak, or philosophy or pol- politics, and really more how does this impact my world and the world of my grandchildren, which I think is where most people live. I mean, that's where we what we all really care about. When all said and done, I think.
1: Yeah, well, you, the, the ultimate is the joy and love that you experience with your grandchildren, for instance, or at least that's what you, in one of the sto- you talk about in the book,
3: which. Right.
1: And but know I think most women if given the chance could would tell if we were given the chance um, would right. tell everyone that we know that right I mean you, you right. talk about yeah being uh, just those moments with Lucy with your granddaughter um, that you experience pure joy just being with her um and but also, you talk a lot about art, because that interests me, art and beauty, and, I mean, I, for me, that's one a very important uh, piece of my life. So let's talk about what does art mean to you, because you experience that a lot with your children, your grandchildren particularly. Right. Yeah.
3: Well, you know, you can find us on any given afternoon off at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, but also right here at home, I'm sitting here looking at two easels in my office that I paint on, because I also paint. And, and, uh, what people are interested- do you do?
0: Yeah, well, hey, the
3: point is, you know, what do you do well, not how much do you do, but I yeah. try to do what I do well. But the thing is, yeah, I paint, and um, and and uh, my granddaughter and grandson sits up there, and they paint too, and they enjoy this, and I've got mounds of clay and all this kind of creative material around. But to me, you know, there, I really see the art in two aspects. One is just as this creative outlet for my grandchildren and for me, but the other is what when, when they and when we are doing that, what we are not doing, you know, what I'm not doing here is handing them an iPad. What they are not doing is playing video games. I really don't think little children should be deprived of a tactile, hands-on relationship with the world in which they find themselves. And I, I love the fact that I'm able to provide that that relationship, whether it's planting a garden and letting them pick the things they've grown, or whether it's sitting down and painting or going to a museum and seeing what other people have done. And, and that sort of gets right into the topic of the book, too, because because I find that a lot of my friends who are atheists and agnostics actually are as spiritual as anybody else, in the sense that when you have a sensitivity towards creativity and art, it isn't a question of religious belief, but it does have a huge impact on on the richness and the fullness of the lives we live in. So the way I would put it is, look, you know we're all biological machines, and, but inside those machines are spiritual beings which look out at the world and crave beauty and art and meaning. So you can dress that up in theological terms and call that faith, or you can just say, hey, this is the paradox of, of our quandary. you know We're animals, and yet we, we certainly see the world in a, in a, as if we are individual personalities looking at it, and we crave beauty. And so one of the great things I find about art is it's this tremendous way in which we can all come together, no matter matter what we say we believe, and really look at this great outpouring of this quest for meaning and beauty and truth in our lives through the creative process. And so the no- nothing pleases me more than, you know, sitting here and writing and looking over and seeing one of my little grandchildren sitting, sometimes even still in their diapers, sitting up at an, an easel, daubing away with a paintbrush. And to them, this is just normal. This is what you do. And my question is, is well, why isn't that just normal for everybody? Why, why would anybody be deprived of that? And so, you know, I hate this idea, for instance, in modern education where there's supposed to be a computer on every desk and, and where we're teaching to the test as if somehow math and reading are the reason we've been put on this earth so we can compete with other economies and so on instead of teaching to what I think is really important. which Well, is art, music, thigh. and theater
1: are the first things to go when there's any kind of an economic problem in the school. and uh, At least I see that in communities across the country. I'm sure you do too, which I think is a big issue. I think the other thing is, and you mentioned this in the book about art, um, Which I think is transformative, and uh, but I think another piece of it is that we tend to make people feel that if they that art somehow is intellectual, that you have to appreciate it in a certain way, you have to read the reviews, and you have to be able to talk about it in a certain way, rather than just. And I think you say this, going and experiencing it. Walk into the museum of fine arts or MoMA or whatever kind, you know, and just feel it. And if you feel it, I mean, you mentioned Jackson Pollock. Um, right. I have stood in front of a Jackson Pollock painting and started to cry, and, and not knowing why, right. but that's yeah. just because I feel the emotion, the, I guess that whatever it is, the chaos in his paintings, whatever. But,
3: yeah.
1: Or John Singer Sargent, you mentioned one of my favorites, so it's, but um, I don't think we, we don't teach it and we don't allow it sort of culturally, I think. Yeah, well, we
3: have a kind of an anti-intellectual knee-jerk bias in this culture that goes all the way back to the Puritans when they were against theater and entertainments and this sort of thing on the one hand, but then there's a modern phenomena too that has nothing to do with that, which I think is a tragedy, and that is art used to be very aligned with craft. It was a working-class activity. People started out as silversmiths, for instance, in the Italian Renaissance in Florence and Siena and places like that. They didn't begin in art schools or with university degrees, and I think it's really dreadful the way art has become a kind of a university subject on one hand, and the art schools have come into this idea that somehow that if you don't have a high intellectual concept, you can pitch in a, in, a, in a paper that you're aiming at a foundation to get some non-profit to support you or whatever it is. You know, art, art was the refuge of dyslexics who could draw, of working class people who were really good stone covers and suddenly they were sculptors and so forth. I don't like this kind of intellectual process which has deprived what I will call working stiffs of the approach to art, either to enjoy it or to be the people who make it. So, you know, we have intellectualized this process and of course instead of making that accessible, it makes it inaccessible. Rather than just being able to look at something, we've got to be able to describe it or or talk about it intellectually. And, of course, it's crazy because when you look at music and even painting or any of the visual arts, the whole point of them is that they impact us on a kind of a nonverbal wow level that should be open to a 3-year-old who can't read or a 90-year-old who's a Ph.D. in philosophy. It's a level playing field and always should have been and always was. So I think it's a shame, really, that uh, between a kind of a knee-jerk North American anti-intellectual bias, which, hey, we're just all folks here. We drop our G's when we run for office so we sound like regular guys. You know, if we use a long word as a sports announcer on a radio or TV show, we got to go back and kind of laugh at ourselves because we don't want to seem highfalutin here. You know, we're all just folks that kind of thing on one hand, but then on the other hand, the intellectual community, which has turned conceptual art into such a high and rarefied thing that if you don't read the long wall notice explaining it next to a couple of overturned armchairs in a gallery and you're not sure whether that's the artwork or whether the maid just hasn't finished cleaning yet, you've got to read the wall notice to know what the intellectual import is. That, too, I think, has really gotten in the way of our enjoyment of art and probably has hurt the funding of art as well, because the, the most people don't take that terribly, terribly seriously and they're thinking, Well we're not you know, we're we're not gonna get into that. So I, I think a good wander through a museum, whether it's modern art or or something quite ancient and let kids do what my dad always did which is let me find the things that really interest me and what I do with my granddaughter Lucy when we go down to the Museum of Fine Arts and we, we vi- revisit Singer Sargent's painting of the Boyt Daughters um, in Paris you know it's a 19th century piece of art but then you know she runs downstairs and looks at a, a Dale Chihuly glass structure which is totally abstract kind of a Jackson Pollock in glass if you were and she loves that and I never tell her hey one is modern and the other is old we just look at it and let her bask in, in those creative things. So, you know, I think this is a great way to, to not only for children and families to do things, but I also think that it's just a terrible shame that we're all about commerce and, and the economy to the point where we're actually undermining the very reason why, you know, having the economy at all makes sense, which is to appreciate things that give a richness to life.
1: So how do we change that? I, I Reading books like yours?
3: Yeah, read books like mine, and and, and, and you know, if you're a grandparent, um, I mean, seriously, this sounds facetious, but, you know, don't don't just move to Florida because you're sick of shoveling snow if you're near your family, and if you're a person trying to bring children up, realize that, that um, you know, this individualistic Anne Randian kind of way of looking at the world where you're this great striver and you're going to go off and make money, and that's the biggest thing. You know, actually, community really means something, and so, you know, when you just roll back a little further in not just our history, but world history, you find it was normal for grandparents to be helping to raise children. You know, families just just up stakes and split. So I think a little continuity in our lives, a little common sense a little appreciation of, of, of spirituality, whether it comes packaged or as religion or not being the point, but when it comes to art. And then a, an emphasis on a kind of hands-on, unmediated, tactile relationship with the world. You know, hand a kid a paintbrush, take that stupid iPad away. Uh, you know, don't stick them in front of a screen thinking that baby Einstein will make them smart. You know, walk around the kitchen table, let them nap in your arms listening to uh, Handel's water music. Let that be the environment. You know, I don't know why we keep thinking we've got to dumb everything down for children. I mean, why is a Disney jingle more, more suitable than Handle? Why do we think we've got to show them cartoons before they have really looked at people who could draw? It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, well, and why do we, we take?
1: How about when we take uh, kids or children on vacation? Why do you go to Disney World or why do you go to some, uh, you know, park with right. roller coasters and all that stuff? Why don't you take them specifically to a museum? Why don't you go to the Clinton exactly. Museum and see the Chihuly exhibit, which he had beautiful glass exhibits. Why don't we... Families don't do that, do they? Or they yeah, don't
3: and, I, and I think actually one of the reasons why we have such trouble in so many different areas in terms of behavior and incivility and all this other stuff, um, you know, that we've got problems with actually roots back to that, because... Obviously, a child who's being read, say, Beatrix Potter, as opposed to watching cartoons, is going to wind up with a totally different vocabulary and an ability to communicate. And then that has direct results in both human relationships but also work. So even if you were just a horrible utilitarian that thought the whole purpose of life is money and power, you would still start.